0: Okay, let me read you these verses from Exodus. Hear them with me. Exodus 4, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. 7, verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt... Pharaoh will not listen to you. 7 verse 13. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord said. 8 verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. 8 verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. 9, verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. 14, verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. 14, verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. There's others we could read. So here's the question. What is is going on with Pharaoh's heart. By my count, between Exodus 4 and 14, Pharaoh's heart is mentioned nearly 18 times. Out of those 18 times, 9 times it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Another 6 times it says that his heart was hardened. Still another 3 times it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. So which is it? Did the Lord harden Pharaoh's heart? Was his heart hardened? Or did Pharaoh harden his heart? And those questions lead to still other questions, deeper questions from the story of Exodus. If you were here last week, you know that we preached through the plagues, how God lit up Egypt with 10 powerful plagues. And we said that All the people came to know the Lord, only that some came to know him in judgment and others came to know him in salvation. And so that raises the question, out of all these human beings, out of all these people, why is it that Israel is his chosen people and Egypt is not? Why is it that these great acts in the land are working out salvation for some and judgment for others? Why is it that by the end of this story, by the time you get to Exodus 15, some people will be having a beach party on the other side of the Red Sea and others will sink like lead weights and drown at the bottom? Why is Israel saved and Egypt judged? And those questions raise still more questions, deeper questions. Questions not just born from the pages of Exodus, but born from our own hearts and our own experience. Questions like, why is it some people are saved and others are not? Why is it some people love Jesus and will go to heaven and others don't and will go to hell? Why is it that I believe but my own brother, father, mother, sister doesn't? And again, those raise still more questions. As we think through Pharaoh, the the question I think we're working our way towards is what's happening here? Is it that I'm hardening my heart or that God is hardening my heart? Is it, and, and this might be the question we're trying to get to, is it that some have chosen God and others haven't or that God has chosen some and others he hasn't? As you can tell, we are in very deep waters here, right? We are not on the shore, sort of splashing around. We are in the middle of the biblical ocean, and we are in very deep waters, and these waters can be both beautiful and breathtaking, spectacular and scary, majestic and mysterious at the same time. Today, we're talking through biblical words like predestination and election, Now, I don't know what kind of background and or baggage you bring into a conversation about those words. I don't know if those words are foreign to you or familiar to you. I don't know if those words are are words that give you comfort or bother you tremendously. What I do want you to know as we enter the conversation is that these are biblical words. That's important. These are not words that were made up by some smart elite. These are not scholars' words, theologians' words, professors' words, pastors' words. These are biblical words, just so you hear them. Ephesians 1 verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Ephesians 1 verse 11, so you hear it again, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 2 Peter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. There's many, many, many others we could read. What I want you to hear is that all Christians who read the Bible and believe the Bible believe these words. They believe in predestination and election. The only question is, what do they think it means? And it's at that point that Christians who love Jesus, who are all on the same team, have disagreed in different sides for thousands of years. Some Christians who answer the question, who is it that believes in Jesus, that will trust in him and have eternal life and go to heaven? They will answer that question as those who choose Jesus, Jesus chooses them. Right? So they, they might say that those who God makes his salvation available to all and those who reach out and do something and, and reach out to Jesus, Jesus saves them, chooses them. This would be what theologians call the Arminian camp, and there are men in history like Jacobus Arminius, John Wesley, good Christian men in our own day like Billy Graham and Chuck Smith and Greg Glory, good biblical churches like the Methodists, the Wesleyans, Pentecostals, and such who would fall on that side of our team, but our team. On the other hand, there are other Christians who have answered the same question, who is it that goes to heaven, trusts in Jesus, and has eternal life? And they've answered the question, those whom Jesus chooses, in turn, choose Jesus. That God makes his salvation available to all, but none receive his salvation, and so Jesus chooses some and opens their heart and opens their eyes and enables them to reach or or to be reached and choose him. That God saves. And into this camp, and you could call that the reformed side of the team, are good Christian men. Men throughout history like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon Good contemporary Christians like John Piper and Tim Keller and John MacArthur and others. Good biblical churches like the Presbyterians. The churches in the Acts 29 network that our church is a part of, Seven Mile Road Church. And for those of you that are keeping score, this is the, the side of the team that your pastor falls on. And my job for the rest of my life is to get you on the right team, right? No, what I want you to hear is Christians have who love Jesus, who love the Bible, who believe the gospel, who are intense about evangelism, they have existed together for thousands of years and have disagreed. So I wanted to say that to you to say, when we approach this text together, first of all, let's be gracious to one another. Let's be really gracious. We may disagree over this. We may differ on it, but we will not divide over it. Right? We will not divide over it. We'll disagree. We'll have intermural, interfamily squabbles about it, but we are one family, one team on, on one side. Okay? So let's be gracious. At the same time, let's also be humble. Humble with one another and humble with the text. L- let's be humble because If Christians who are far better than us have wrestled with these things for thousands of years, let's not imagine in 40 minutes we know all things and are ready to push others out. But let's also be humble with the text, right? We are not dealing with a neat nick theological system where every I is dotted, every T is crossed, every question you can imagine is answered. We're not dealing with a riddle that if we just spend enough time teasing out the answer, we'll arrive at everything we want to know. We're dealing with a person, except a much higher person. We're dealing with God and the mind of God, the eternal will of God, the counsel of God, the purposes of God. You're talking about an entirely different category of being. And so we know of him, what he's revealed himself to us. And where he is silent, we do not know. So I want you to be humble, ready to receive both the answers and the silence that God provides. Where he gives answers, humbly receive them and submit to them. Where he gives silence, humbly receive it and trust him. I recognize going into the conversation that I am not going to answer all the questions that you may have this morning. And that's not just because of a lack of time. It's because even if we were to devote every Sunday from now till Jesus returns, we will not answer the depths of this doctrine. Because he is higher and his thoughts are higher and his ways are higher than us and our ways. And so where he has revealed himself, let's study. And where he has hidden himself, let's trust him. There's a mystery to this. And I want you to hear that from me, who believes one side of this thing. There's a mystery. We do not pretend to understand it all. We just, we just acknowledge that we trust in him. And this mystery is not a cop-out. It's just a humble confession that we are not God, and he is. And that we know what he wants us to know, and nothing more. My intention this morning is to walk you through a great deal of biblical material. And then I want to end our time by just giving you some personal how this doctrine has found its way to my heart. And hopefully with that, some words of application for you. Okay, let's pray to the Lord and ask for his help. And then we'll plumb these depths together. God, I give you thanks for these brothers and sisters. I thank you that you love them. Many you have eternally loved, you will love for all eternity. We give you thanks for the word because by it you make yourself known. I pray for grace for all of us today. I pray that you would give to all the people here mental energy and traction to stay with the biblical material as we talk through many things. I pray that you would give them courage to ask good and honest questions. I pray that you would give them freedom to continue the conversation after this sermon so that we would talk about it and encourage one another. I pray for grace to not divide. I pray for strength and unity. I pray that you would uh, Make us uncomfortable, but in doing so, bring us to greater depths of understanding of you and your salvation, that we might come to see Jesus in a more precious light. I pray that you would take our hard hearts, which is what the scriptures say, like Pharaoh, that we have, and pelt it with hard words till they are broken and made soft. Our hard hearts need hard words, and we pray that you would give us grace and that you would melt hearts today and turn them to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as you know, we're working our way through the book of Exodus. We've been in a series that we've called The Gospel According to Exodus. For today, we're actually going to be in the book of Romans. And we're doing that because the Apostle Paul is going to speak about this whole topic and is going to talk, referring back to our passages and to our text. He's actually going to look at the Exodus story and even speak specifically about Pharaoh and his heart. So we're in in Romans today, and in the ninth chapter is where we'll spend. And most of our time we're actually going to start though in chapter 8 with verse 29 romans chapter 8 verse 29 this is what it says for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, we'll start there so that you're at least oriented to what we're going to talk through in this conversation. Theologians have called this section of Scripture, Romans 8, 29 to 30, the golden thread or the golden chain. And you can perhaps see it there that there's this progression of words, these successive links like chains that are interlocked, that are irremovable, and they represent together this glorious reality. You can hear them. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Right? You hear that successive train of words, and there's this progression through them, and they are this what theologians call this golden chain that start at the beginning and end at the end and cannot be removed anywhere in the middle. So let me walk you quickly through these words. The first says that God foreknew some. And this word foreknew means that God had an advanced relationship with. Now some will look at this word and see that it means just that God had a foreknowledge. So some of the idea is, look, God looked down the corridors of time and history, saw those who would choose him, and so chose them. Right? He foreknew their choice, and so he reacted to, responded to their choice by choosing them. And now while we can understand why that would be a, a reasonable explanation, the word foreknowledge here has a deeper meaning. It's not just an advanced knowledge, but an advanced relationship. When this word is used in several places throughout the scriptures, it's not just a mental intelligence but an advanced relationship. In 1 Peter 1 verse 20, it'll talk about God foreknowing Christ. And it's not that he just had a mental knowledge that Christ was around, but that he had an advanced relationship with Christ from before even the foundation of the earth. In Jeremiah 1, it'll speak about God knowing Jeremiah even before his birth, while he was in his mother's womb. And he's saying that not to communicate to Jeremiah, I knew when you were there, but to say while he's calling him to ministry, listen, I had a relationship. I had set my affection, my love on you before you were even born. Before you came out of the womb, I had set my love and my affection on you. I had a relationship with you. This is the same word, we've said it before too. Knowledge to know has sometimes in the the scriptures a deeper understanding than just mental understanding, like we think. This is why Genesis 4 will say Adam knew his wife and she bore him a son. It was not that Adam just had a mental understanding of Eve and what do you know, she got pregnant. No, it was that he set his love on her, his affection on her, in the most literal sense, in the highest sense for mankind. He had intercourse with her, and she bore a son. And so what this is saying is that God had a foreknowledge, a love for his people from before the foundation of the world. That that reality has sort of been hanging on me all week. One preacher said it like this, we love drippy, sappy love songs that talk about loving you before the stars were in the sky. And yet God is the one being for whom that is not hyperbole, not exaggeration, but reality. That God loved his people, loved you that belong to him before the stars were put in the sky. That in the eternal counsel and mind of God, You were there, and a thought of you was there, and a love for you was there that was with you throughout time, throughout your birth, throughout your life, and will be with you for all eternity. From eternity past to eternity future, he has been in love with you. And those whom God foreknew, Romans, the next thread on the chain, the next successive word is he predestined, He marked their destiny in advance. Their eternal eternal future was secured before. And those whom he predestined, he called. The scriptures have this word call as a general word that he calls all men. And you just have to read the Bible to hear God calling to all men. Come to me, turn to me. Ezekiel, why will you die? Turn to me, run to me, confess, repent, return. But while that call is given to all, there's this call, this what theologians call effectual call in the heart of those whom he foreknew and predestined. That is that God's spirit works in your heart and you cannot help but respond to the call of God. He always gets his mark and when he calls those whom he foreknew and predestined, they respond in faith. And all who respond in faith, the next successive word is he justified. And we've talked through that word many times. That your sins are forgiven and you are declared righteous in Christ. And all those whom are justified are then glorified. That you have an eternity waiting. You will receive the kingdom of the saints. You will inherit glory. And so you see this chain, this golden chain, that those whom God foreknew, he predestined and called And justified and glorified. And friends, this should be a word of assurance for us that none are lost along the way. It's not that he knew, foreknew a whole bunch, and out of those he predestined some, and some of those he called, and still some he justified, and some make it all the way to the end. But rather, all those, he never loses one. This chain is inseparable. You cannot remove a single link. We cannot be separated from God. And it's to that truth that Paul then turns. The impossibility of our separation with God. This is what he says in Romans 8, 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything in all of creation... Will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul saying, Friends, don't you see? If he's got you, he will get you all the way to the end. He will carry you. This should be a word of great assurance for us that there is nothing, nothing, nothing. Nothing in the angelic world, nothing in the demonic world, nothing in heaven, nothing in hell, nothing in your sin, nothing in Satan, nothing in all the world, in all creation, not even death itself can separate you from the love of God that is yours in Christ. It's a great word of assurance that he who began this work is faithful to carry it out to the end and for all time. This is what Jesus says in John 10, the same idea. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Do you hear Jesus and Paul saying to you, listen, if you're in his hand, This is not about how tightly you'll hold on to him, but rather how tightly he will hold on to you. This is not about the strength of your grip to hold on to God. This is the strength of God's grip to hold on to you. And if he's got you in his hand, nothing, I say, nothing in all of creation, neither heaven nor hell, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. If that's true then that raises a huge question. And that's the question that Paul will turn to in Romans 9 to address. And the question is, okay, if you're telling me that God has his people and his people will never be removed, what about the Jews? What about the people who have been God's people throughout all time from the beginning? What happened with the Jews? If we're going to trust that his word will prevail and hold us to the end, how can we trust that when the Jews do not believe? When Paul is writing this in Romans 9, he has unbelieving Jews all around him. Jesus came among the Jewish people and they crucified and killed him. And it's a very small minority that believe. So what happened with the Jews? If God holds, then... Has his word failed? Because the Jews do not believe. After all, they were God's people. That's what Paul reminds us of in 9 verse 4. He says, They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul's reminding you, remember who these people are. They were the ones who were given adoption. The whole story of Exodus that we're working our way through is God acting miraculously, mightily to save them and set them apart from all the people and make them his own son. To them was given the glory, the glory that would fill the tabernacle, which we'll see at the end of Exodus, and fill the temple throughout the Old Testament. To them was given the covenants, like we'll see in Exodus 19 and 24, this special vow where they're set apart, they're made His treasured people like no one else on the planet. To them were given the worship, the sacrificial system, getting you ready for Jesus. Them were given the promises of salvation. They had the patriarchs, the fathers of faith, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. For goodness sakes, it's from them. From their line, from their race, from their ethnicity, from their flesh, that Jesus himself, blessed be his name, Paul says, came. You see, Israel was not just a blip on the screen. They were not just some small part of the plan. They they were God's people. Salvation history came through them. The place they held in God's purposes and plans were huge. So then, what do you do with the fact that they now don't believe? And Paul's not apathetic about that. Even though he's about to go into this long, lengthy discussion on predestination, he's not about to just say, oh, well, I guess they weren't in, as though it does not matter. No, you see Paul's heart. Look at what he says in 9 verse 1 to 3. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Listen, whatever else can be said about the doctrine of predestination election, what cannot be said is that it removes missionary zeal and a desire for evangelism. One of the objections that's often weighed is, look, if God has already chosen, and if God's will will be done, and all who are his will be his, then we might as well kick up our feet and relax. We have no reason. The reformed kind cannot possibly want to plant churches, or witness to people, or evangelize, or pray for salvation. And Paul, who perhaps teaches more than anyone else on this doctrine, surpasses us all in his missionary zeal. Paul is on the front lines and frontier of missionary work. Paul is the church planter extraordinaire. Paul is the one who has gone from city to city to city, telling everyone he can about the gospel, risking his life, getting beat up, so that everyone can hear the gospel proclamation. Paul is not apathetic about mission because he believes in predestination. In fact, it fuels him all the more. Paul here, though he's planting churches to the Gentiles, we're reading the book of Romans where he's writing to Roman Christians, not Jews. He doesn't want anyone confused into thinking that somehow because he's gone to the Gentiles, he's grown apathetic or insensitive to his own people. No, his heart is breaking for them. He says, listen, I would give my own spiritual life if that meant they would have spiritual life. I myself would be cut off if they could be grafted in. I would give my own soul for their souls. It's very Christ-like. He's willing to give all of himself that others might receive salvation. And it's appropriate, Seven Mile Road, for us to have that kind of zeal. Right? It's appropriate for you to be heartbroken and concerned over your own tribe. Maybe it's your family. And you cry out to God and you say, God, this is not people who are Just distant to me. My heart is in great anguish. These are my blood, my flesh. This is my dad, my mom, my brother, my sister, my friends. This is my tribe and whatever that might be. This is my people. These are young professionals like I am. These are suburbanites like I am. These are young moms like I am. Whoever God puts that burden in, it's right for you to have anguish and burden. It's right for you to pray as Paul does after he teaches on predestination. In Romans 10, verse 1, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Everything he believes does not stop him from praying, God, let them be saved. Let them be saved. Let them come to a knowledge of you. Paul would give anything for them to believe. And it breaks his heart That they have rejected Christ because what that means is that the people of God have rejected God himself. In rejecting God's son and savior, they are rejecting God himself. And so again, that brings us back to what about the Jews? What of the fact that they do not believe? Paul wants to argue or, or the people want to argue with Paul. Listen, Jesus can't possibly be the Christ because All the people of God don't believe him. And if he is the Christ, then it must mean that God's word failed. And that God didn't come through on his promises to Israel. Has God's word failed? And that's exactly what Paul wants to say is not the case. Look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. Paul says, listen, God's word has not failed. For you see, from the beginning, not all Israel was true Israel. You see, from the beginning, not all physical seed was spiritual seed. Even from the beginning, not just after the Christ event, from the beginning, God was drawing a distinction even among the chosen people. That this was not just by birth, it would need to be spiritual birth. Not just physical seed, spiritual seed. Don't you see, from the beginning itself, God did not think that faith passed along just through genetic lines. He wants to say, it's not that God's word has failed to Israel. The question is, who is Israel? right? God's word has remained true to Israel. The question, though, is, who is true Israel? And it's not just those who were born of physical descendancy. It's those who were born spiritually. And that's a good word for us to remember. That God is saying here that the children of God are not the children of flesh, but the children of promise. That's a good word for you to remember. That you cannot ride the coattails of your parents' faith. That Christianity does not pass down DNA lines. That you cannot inherit their faith, but that you need to have your own. That none of us are born Christians, but reborn Christians. It's not physical descendancy, but spiritual descendancy that makes us Christian. And your children cannot simply inherit your faith. They will need to come to it themselves as well. So it is now, so it was then. And Paul is saying, don't you see, even among the chosen people were chosen persons. Okay, this is what he says next. He gives some examples. Verse 9. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, Either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, God's gonna, Paul's going to try and show you that even from the beginning, God was electing some. Even from Israel, there were those who were chosen. And the first example he gives is, after all, don't you remember, it was through Isaac that the promise continued, not Ishmael. The forefather, Abraham, had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, one born to a slave named Hagar, one born to his wife, Sarah. And God said from the beginning, don't you know, the promise went through Isaac and not Ishmael. And then, lest you think that's just because that kid was born of a slave's mom, as his mom, he says, no. And and then what about the next generation where Isaac has two sons born of the same father, same mother, and they're even in the womb at the same time. They're twins, Jacob and Esau. And yet God chose Jacob and not Esau. And Paul almost goes out of his way to tell you that this is not because there was some greater merit in Jacob that was lacking in Esau. He says, before they had done anything, either good or evil, so that the purpose of God in election might stand. This was not because God looked down the corridor of time and saw something lacking in Esau that he found meritorious and good in Jacob, but rather for God's purposes, for God's reasons, which we honestly do not know, which are in his eternal decrees. Which is his freedom in sovereignty over election. It's not that there was anything in either of these boys, because both of them grow up to be scoundrels. Jacob is a young liar and cheat, Je- Esau is a, a glutton and immoral and a fool. And God says, I've chosen one and not the other. Jacob I have loved, Esau I hated. And that, that's not like the way that you hate the Cowboys or you hate the, the Yankees, but this is just to draw a contrast between the two. One was chosen, one was not. Okay, you hear that and you want to shout, not fair, right? Some of you thought you didn't like Christianity, now you're sure you hate Christianity, right? Not fair, justice, that's injustice. And Paul anticipates your objection. You're so predictable because Paul will say, verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. We cry not fair. We want justice. We want what's fair. Nothing more, nothing less. Can I remind you what the scriptures tell us? That if you got what was fair... If you got justice, that would mean hell for us all. Please do not overlook that reality of Scripture. If you want what is fair, if you want what is just, if you want what you deserve, nothing more, nothing less, that means hell for everybody. Everybody, if they got what they deserved, gets hell. Getting hell hell is not unjust. It is simply getting what you deserve. Fair is judgment. Fair is eternal separation from God. Getting what we deserve is hell. Not getting what we deserve is mercy. And God is not obligated to show mercy to anyone. But the wonder is he shows it to many. Listen, you know in your heart that justice is right and mercy is not obligated you know that when Osama bin Laden was killed you may have quarreled over how it was done nobody said that the US was obligated to show mercy that what we should have done was captured him brought him here forgiven him pardoned him made him a citizen and appointed him an ambassador for our nation you may have disagreed over how it happened but nobody said That we were obligated to show mercy. Justice is getting the punishment that is fitting of the crime. You know that in your heart. And mercy is a free gift, but it is not uh, obligatory. Right? You, You know in your heart that justice is getting a punishment that is equal to the crime, to the offense. I'll give you an example. One preacher said it like this. If you have a small infraction, you know that justice is required. So if you make a, a verbal offense, then a, a verbal restitution, something commensurate, equal, is required. So if I say something stupid to Shainu, then I can't just five minutes later walk into the kitchen and pretend everything's okay. I've tried that. It doesn't work, Right? Why? Because she expects some kind of verbal restitution. Until I go, look, what I said was stupid, I'm really sorry. You can, I know you can be mad at me, but I, I'm really sorry. Do what you will, but, but I was wrong. Until that happens, we're not good, right? And, and the greater the offense, the greater the justice required. And so sometimes a verbal apology isn't enough. You husbands know that. Now it's got to be backed up with some kind of behavior to show that, that justice is being served here, right? Right? And the greater the offense, you know that as this goes, the scale just gets greater and greater. For example, if you commit a national offense like treason, every civilization in the history of the world has treated treason the same way. If your countrymen, thousands of your own people, are killed because you betrayed them, then treason is always treated the same way. Now again, maybe some of you have a hang-up over capital punishment. At the very least, they're sent in exile, and that seems fair, right? If you betrayed this country, it would at least seem right that you are no longer allowed here. You are separated forever from here. So what is fair with cosmic treason? What is right, what is a fitting crime for cosmic treason against an eternal God, but eternal exile? And the worst part is that's what the human heart wants anyway. The human heart is bound in sin. God is not working with morally neutral, zero, and making them all negative. God is taking a heap of those who are sinful. That's what the scriptures say. The scriptures tell us that our condition is that Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we once walked. So all the while, while we're choosing and walking in sin towards God, we are spiritually dead, a corpse. Again, let me remind you, how much movement, motion, thought, will does a corpse make? None. And so the Bible says that our condition by nature and choice, we all made our choice, we choose sin all the time is that we are dead towards God. We have no thought towards God, no motion towards God, no desire for God, no will for God. The scriptures say that not only are we dead, but that none of us choose God. Romans 3 verse 10, none is righteous. Hear this, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. That is a plain indictment over humanity. That out of all human beings who have ever created, no one understands and no one seeks for God. C.S. Lewis understand, understood that. He said, men speak amicably, amicably about searching for God. He said, for me, that would be like a mouse searching for a cat. Right? Nobody seeks, no sinful man seeks after a holy God. But what we do is constantly rebel and choose death and choose enmity and choose away from him. We've made our choice and it is constantly away. But in his mercy, God makes a choice as well. And he chooses to save. God is not obligated to save anyone. You tell me. No one is obligated to show Osama bin Laden mercy, and yet rebels of God, traitors and enemies like us, he shows mercy all the time. I don't know why he doesn't save all, but for me, one of the greater mysteries is why does he save any? In fact, why does he save many? In fact, why did he save me? I would have never chosen me. God shows grace to countless many. Now, that doesn't answer all our questions, because we've got more, right? The questions are not just, hey, that's unfair, but, okay, if that's the way it is, then why would he blame us, right? If all this has been predetermined, if the cards have been stacked, then at least we must be faultless. And that's Paul's next question, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Verse 20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? <coughs> Verse 20 can feel like a cop-out. It's not. Questioning God. One preacher said it like this. <coughs> Questioning God is okay. Quarreling with him is not. Right? Questioning God, honest, sincere questions, and at the end of this, you may have many. I will literally be sitting here after the service, and we can talk. We can sit in a circle and talk. There'll be many questions. Quarreling with God is not. Because in quarreling with God is an underlying assumption. Sorry. And the assumption is, I could have done this better. What you've done is not right, not fair. I do not like it. I could have structured this whole thing better. We see Moses do this. If you remember back to Exodus 5. If you remember back in Exodus 5, Moses, who has been called to mission, then goes to God. He, he goes to Pharaoh. It doesn't turn out the way he wants. He makes their lives harder. Bricks without straw. Moses' response is to go to God and say, You did evil. Why did you even call me? Because since I've come here, Pharaoh's done nothing but evil, and you've done nothing at all. And what's great about Exodus 5 is that it comes after Exodus 3 and 4, right? Naturally, right? But if you remember to Exodus 3 and 4, what is it? God has to twist this guy's arm to get him on mission. God has to compel him to join his heart of love to save many. God has to five times over convince him, I'm longing to save these people. I want to rescue them. Will you come? Will you be a part of it? Please, please, please. And he has to twist this man's arm to join him in mission. And now that Moses is here, he turns around and says, you don't love these people. You don't even care about them. Moses, did you just forget that you had to have your arm broken to get here? And now you turn around and say, I love these people more than you do. We do the same thing. I don't know the mystery of all this. What I do know is these are the facts. The facts are that God loved a sinful humanity who had rebelled against him. I know from my own heart, who had nothing to do with him, who sinned against him all the time, at enmity with him. And that God, though he was not obligated, came down in human form and lived a perfect life and bore death on the cross and suffered unspeakable sin. (coughs) He gave his life. It hurt. It cost. That's the facts. And I know the other side of the facts is I have a hard time getting off the couch to witness to my neighbor. And I know those are the facts. And yet I think you don't love people. You've messed with them. You've screwed them over. What I do rest in is he is better than I am. He loves more than I do. He is wiser than I am. He is more just than me. In every way, he is right. Let my mouth be shut. Because I am in the wrong. Aren't you glad that not any of us are the sovereign ones of the universe? As though this would have worked out better if we did it. That we would have doled out more mercy than God. Someone cuts you off on Roosevelt Boulevard. It takes everything in you not to run them off the road. And yet you think you would have just been lavish with mercy everywhere. My friend Matt from Boston, he says, do you know what I do when I find hardened clay? Like my kids have been playing with Play-Doh and six months later it's under the couch. Now it's dried up like a brick and I don't even think twice. I throw that nasty thing out. And yet God finds hardened brick-like hearts all over the place, and he melts them time and time and time again. And where he would be right to toss them, he redeems them at the cost of his own life. We want to say, look, why would we be at blame? And yet the scriptures are going to say, God is sovereign, even over election, and man is responsible. Hear that. God is sovereign, man is responsible. You cannot take away either without doing violence to the biblical truth and text. You have to hold both in the tension that it is, but you cannot let go of either. We would like for it to be one of two. If God's sovereign, fine, right? No problem. We're all robots, we're all pawns, we're all pieces in his game. It does not matter. Do whatever you want. He'll take care of it. Or if we're responsible, fine. Then my choices are highest in the universe, and even God's will is submitted to my will, and God has to respond to my choices as opposed to me responding to God's. That my choices bind God to action as opposed to God's choices binding me to action. My will is highest in the universe, and God is constantly in the heavens, fingers crossed, hoping everything works out right. I hope this guy chooses that. I hope this guy chooses that. And constantly, even with Pharaoh, I just, I guess I got lucky that he hardened his heart and I was able to do the plagues and walk them out through the Red Sea. And the scriptures say, no, it is both and. Not either or, both and. That God is sovereign, man is responsible. Let me give you three quick examples from the scriptures. In Genesis 50, there's the story of Joseph, right? Right? His brothers sell him into slavery. Through a series of events, he becomes second in command. They're reconciled, and he says to them, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. He doesn't say, brothers, you're off the hook, because God had planned this all along. You were just mere pieces in the game, so you have no fault of your own. Nor does he say, you guys were scoundrels who did evil, but thankfully God reacted fast enough and made it all come out good in the end. He says, no, you you did what was evil. But God, all the while, had purposed all that to to come to good. God is sovereign and man is responsible. Isaiah, there's this passage where Isaiah is speaking about Assyria. And God says, listen, I'm going to take Assyria and they will be like a rod in my hand with which I will chastise and discipline and punish Israel. But then because of Assyria's sin and how they go about in wickedness, I will punish Assyria. And the two are not a contradiction but are consistent in the scriptures. Assyria is going to sinfully inflict on Israel. And yet it's God's intention all the while that Assyria be used to discipline Israel. And the two are right. Or perhaps in Jesus you know that example well the apostles are spreading the gospel after Jesus died and rose again and they get beaten up and they regroup and they pray and they say God we thank you that everything you predetermined Pilate and Judas and the Jews and all of it did everything exactly as you intended is Judas off the hook because he was a pawn in God's game and he his betrayal of Jesus was no big deal is Pilate's washing of his hands no big deal? Is the crowd's chanting crucify him, no big deal? Is yours and my involvement in the death of Christ because of our sin no big deal? If they're not at fault, neither are we. No, every one of their sins were wicked sins. And yet everyone accomplished exactly what God intended to accomplish. From before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. This is how it was going to happen. But listen to me, this is not Greek fatalism. Greek fatalism says that the gods, the capricious, the whimsical gods have sealed your destiny despite your behavior. The doctrine of election and predestination says that your destiny is determined through your behavior. It's not despite your behavior, but that God works through your choices and your choices are real ones. This is what was happening with Pharaoh as well. Remember, Pharaoh was not a good guy who was just hoping to do the right thing and set the people free, and God kept turning the dial and making his heart hard. And he kept fighting against it, but God kept being unjust. No. Remind yourself of who Pharaoh was. Pharaoh was a wicked and cruel man. We can switch the two in our minds. My three year old Hannah does this all the time. We act out the story of Moses in our house. And Hannah will often go and pray for Pharaoh. Please bless him and help him. And, and Shina will act like Pharaoh and she'll go, Pharaoh, you have such a beautiful dress on and be friendly with him. And I've got a constant reminder, no, this is the bad guy of the story. You can't pray blessings for him, right? But, but we somehow make God the bad guy and Pharaoh the good guy. And the scriptures want to remind you, who was Pharaoh? A wicked and ruthless racist king who practiced genocide and infanticide and killed babies and slaughtered them all, who enslaved innocent people and nine times was given an opportunity to repent and not once took it up. How did the Lord harden Pharaoh's heart? Through patience, through opportunity. Nine times Pharaoh turned, Pharaoh stopped, Pharaoh set them free. Nine times, let me show you who I am. I am the only God, the only Lord. Nine times an opportunity to change. The Puritans used to have a saying that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. So some receive opportunity and a call to repent and their hearts are broken. And some, those same opportunities are given and they are only hardened in unbelief. It could happen here. Week after week after week after week, you could hear the proclamation of the gospel. Repent. Why will you die? Turn to Christ. And for some of you, it will break your hearts. And my prayer is that none of you would be further hardened in unbelief and sin. This is a man who hardened his heart and receives judgment. And this is a man at the same time whom God hardens his heart and receives judgment. God is sovereign, and you are responsible. Both are true. If you're here today, again, if, and, and maybe if you're not a Christian and you're here because a friend brought you here, th- this can all sound scary and weird and difficult. What I want to say to you is you have a choice today. There's grace, there's hope, because you're here. Nobody knows who the elect are. And so we preach to all men, and Jesus promised all that to- come to him will be saved. There is no one who's going to come to Jesus and he looks at his list and he says, nope, you weren't on. Because you're coming to him, he's working in it and through it. He's drawing you to himself. This is your hour of opportunity and grace. This is God's mercy in your life. You are hearing the gospel because God loves you and God's calling you today, come, receive the gospel. Why will you die? Repent and trust in Jesus. lastly, we won't go through this much. Verse 21 to the end. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? All of this, Both the judgment on the unrighteous and the pardon for sinners is resulting in great glory to God. And that is right and good. He is the one being in the universe who is the center of the universe. And it's right for him to be glorified. When you find a a 13-year-old punk who acts like he's the center of the universe, you hate that. Why? Because he's not the center of the universe. But what if you had a being who was who was the center of the universe. And it was right for him to say, I am the greatest thing, and you should look to me. God's the only being for whom telling you to praise him is actually a loving thing. Because in drawing you to himself, he's giving you what is greatest in all the universe. If he called you to something else, he'd be holding back from you what is most good for you, which is himself. And so God is the only one who says, come to me, glorify me, praise me. And that's actually a loving thing because he's giving you what your soul needs. If he held back himself and gave you health, he'd hate you. But if he gave you himself, that would be unending love for you. We can talk more through this. And again, I literally will be here, okay? But let me just walk you very quickly through my own journey through all of this. I grew up never having heard predestination or election. I had never heard these words. They were completely foreign to me. In fact, I remember being in 12th grade history, I think it was European history or something like that, and, and the teacher taught on John Calvin, and I remember thinking, that is monstrous. I was a Christian at the time, and I remember wanting to tell all my friends, don't believe any of that. Don't hate my faith because of that, because none of that's true. I was totally against this. And then I got to seminary, and I remember meeting some Christians who loved Jesus, who were intense about mission who were much holier and much better than I was and they believed this and I was intrigued and that began hear this a multi-year struggle of many conversation and many books and lots of dialogue in fact I remember coming to Philadelphia I was in Boston at the time for a, a retreat with the students at USP and there was a guy who believed this and I just sat him down during lunch and grilled him And he patiently just opened the scriptures with me. And I struggled and wrestled. And after years, I began to see this as biblical truth. And little by little, though I didn't like it, I believed it till eventually it won me. And it elicits praise from me. I am not saying this is a matter of primary importance. Hear that. You can be a member at Seven Mile Road and struggle through these things. What I am saying is for me, this opened up my soul to a much bigger view of God and a much smaller view of me. What election and predestination did for me is it both humbled me and encouraged me. It humbled me. You know why? Because there was nothing in myself that chose God. I know me. I know me. Even after becoming a Christian, I know how intentionally I choose away from him. And I know apart from his grace, I would have never sought for him. I would have never looked for him. I would have never searched for him. And I know the only reason there is an ounce of spiritual life in my soul is because God showed me grace. It humbles me. You know why? Because my unbelieving friend in me, it is not that I did something better than him when it boils down and, and you try and think of this without election and predestination. You're a Christian, your brother's not. Why is that? Because I accepted Jesus and my brother didn't. Why is that? Because I turned from my sins and I trusted him. Why is that? Ultimately, you did something that the other guy didn't. And for all eternity, you have this small boast that you did something. You were somehow better or smarter or, or chose something that the others didn't. And so you're in. For me, the only reason I'm in is because Jesus showed me grace. Because he found me. He sought me. He opened me. He won me. And he claimed me for himself. I have no boast. None. And at the same time, it encourages me. Can you imagine that before the stars were hung in the sky... God foreknew you that belonged to him. That literally it's true when he says, I have loved you for all eternity. From before time began, before I made the mountains, you were in view for me. And I've pursued you throughout your life, and I will have you for all eternity. I mean, that is the love story of all love stories. And for me, I still have lots of questions. Why this? Why that? My greatest question now is, why did you choose me? I would have never chosen me, but only by your grace. You walked by my grave and you said, Ajay, come forth, and my dead soul came alive, and I was brought to life. It is the grace of God in election.